I think one of my, uh, my favorite parts about being a parent, and I assume uh, this is true of, of everyone who works with kids, their kids, other people's kids. I just, one of my favorite parts of being a parent is watching these little personalities develop, just blossom out of these little tiny bodies that God has entrusted to us, sometimes foolishly, I think. Um, and sometimes the personalities aren't all that little either. But I just, I love watching my four little kids and just seeing how the same, you know, combination of mom and dad produce such incredible variety among the kids, just at the very core of who they are. I've got, you know, I've got one kid, I've got one kid I'm still trying to figure out, the youngest one, but I've got one kid who gets out of bed every single morning with one mission in life. She just wants to make people happy. She just wants to do stuff that, that makes other people happy. And uh, there's weakness to that, but it's such an amazing gift and strength from this sensitive, sensitive spirit. And I've got another kid who wakes up every morning and it seems like her only mission in life is to make people laugh. She's goofy and she's the clown and she's jokey and, and she just always, all she wants is to, is to make people howl. When she falls on the ice in skating, the first thing she does is check up at the stands to make sure that somebody saw her fall so that they can share in her laugh. And I've got one kid who wakes up every day, for whom somewhere core to her makeup, she's utterly driven by the need for justice, <laughs> by the need for fairness. It's like her highest value in life is that everything be fair, that everybody get exactly what they deserve. They're, she's the kid, you know, when you hand out bowls full of fishy crackers, she's the one who inspects all the bowls to make sure that they're all at roughly the same level so that all the kids are getting the same number of fishy crackers. We had to kind of diffuse a little bit of a situation in the van this week because two of the girls had gotten chapsticks and two of the girls hadn't. And this was just an unthinkable travesty of justice that two people were being robbed of chapstick it's and it's not always just about her like she wants to make sure she's getting everything you know you'll be at the dollar store and she'll ask you know dad can I get these stickers and yeah totally honey why don't you let's get you these stickers and then she'll stop you and you'll say but dad now we have to buy uh now we have to buy four so that all the girls get stickers it's just this innate burning drive for fairness that everybody gets what they deserve. That everybody gets treated the way they ought. That everything's just right with how we treat each other. It's, I think, something that burns really deeply in the core of every single one of us. Um, this sense that, um, with this longing for fairness in a world, and I think this is going to be my journey with that one child for her whole life, is walking her through the reality that life isn't fair. That sometimes, um, sometimes you get humiliated and insulted by somebody. Degraded and, and treated like an inferior 
forgotten and ignored. Sometimes you have your rights just stripped away from you in, in ways that you just don't deserve. Sometimes um, people force you to do things that you just never wanted to do. And sometimes people impose on you and this life isn't fair. And one of the questions that Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount is the question of how we respond in those instances when life isn't fair. This whole part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been talking about what it looks like to live righteously, a deeper, better, wholehearted kind of righteousness. The word righteousness simply means living rightly with God in a way that allows me to live rightly with myself and rightly with you all and rightly with the world. And Jesus, for Jesus, living rightly with God, living a, a righteous life is a life that's all about relationship and not about rule keeping like we so often make it in our religious kind of mindsets. It's not about rule keeping. It's about relationship. It's about loving God with a heart that's full of, of, of just love for him and loving everyone else as much as we love ourselves with this heart that is motivated and inspired and empowered and, and um, enabled to just be different. So that in the midst of conflict, we're seeking reconciliation. So we're the kind of people who are committed to respecting folks instead of treating them as objects who exist for our own gratification. People who fight for, for marriage instead of justifying divorce. People who love each other by the way they tell the truth. And Jesus, in his vision for righteousness, offers another example in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, that has to do with what happens when life isn't, when we get hurt by the unfairness of life. He says in Matthew 5, 38, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now, Jesus is quoting again, as he has so often in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, from the Old Testament law, the Old Testament Jewish religious law. Those words appear three times, but for our purposes, I'll read from Leviticus 24. It says, anyone who takes the life of a human being is to be put to death. Anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution, life for life. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured. In the same manner, excuse me. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Now to our you know, 21st century ears, that can sound harsh and barbaric. But truth be told, this law, which was actually common in the ancient world, in civilizations outside of Israel, even civilizations that predate Israel, um, this law was the foundation of what we call justice. It was the starting place in, in terms of legal, you know, the legal system, the justice system. It was the starting place of functioning civilization. Because what it did is it took a situation that everybody faces where they've been hurt by somebody else and, and it forbids people from taking matters into their own hands. You see, this wasn't a, an injunction written to private individuals. If somebody you know, knocks out your tooth, make sure you go and knock out their tooth. No, no, no. This was something that a judge was supposed to figure out. It moved 
um, the punishment for that kind of thing out of the realm of revenge and retaliation and it moved it into the realm of the legal system and justice. It, uh, it limited the amount of punishment that could be doled out uh, for any particular crime of injury. You know, if, if I knock out your tooth, you can't cut off my hand. I can only be injured in the same way that I injured you. There's a, there's a limit. The punishment has to fit the crime. Um, it limited uh, the punishment to just the parties who were involved, the offender and the, and the one who was offended. Um, you know, if I knock out your tooth, you get your brother, and the two of you roll me to teach me a lesson, well, then I'm going to call my cousins, and we're going to, like, burn your car. But then you're going to get your posse, and you're going to burn down my house. And there's this escalating cycle of violence that incorporates wider and wider circles of people. And this law says, no, none of that, none of that. We settle this in court with a punishment that fits the crime and this only has to do with the people who are involved. It was a way of reining in a culture of violence and revenge and retaliation and trying to bring justice instead. Now what happened to this law over time, unfortunately, was that this law that was intended to restrict and rein in revenge and retaliation became a law that was used for revenge and retaliation. You, you knock out my tooth and I know the law. Well, I'm going to drag you to court and I'm going to get them to knock out your tooth. Actually, I'm not going to get them to knock out your tooth because your tooth doesn't do me any good. What do I want with your tooth? What I'm going to do is I'm going to drag you to the court. And this was most often how it worked out. I'm going to drag you to court and I'm going to get a judge to tell me how much that tooth is worth worth, and I'm going to make you pay. It was personal injury law at its finest. Assess the damage, assign a monetary value, and then make the sucker pay. You're going to pay for my tooth. You're going to pay for lost wages. You're going to pay for pain and suffering. You're going to pay for mental anguish. You are going to pay. I'm not interested. This is how it worked out. I'm not interested in getting even. I'm interested in getting ahead. Because that, according to the law, is my right. That's what I deserve. That's what I have coming to me. Because you hurt me. It was into that sort of mentality of retaliation and revenge that Jesus says in Matthew 5.39, you heard it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. One of the most unfortunately translated verses in the entire New Testament, in my opinion. Because in so many churches, so many people have told is that what Jesus means is that you're not supposed to stop a bad person from doing bad things to you. You're not supposed to resist an evil person. You're not supposed to oppose them. And it's as though Jesus is teaching some kind of passivity so that when a burglar is breaking into your home in the middle of the night, when a sexual predator is making their advance, when a, um, a controlling family member is manipulating you, when an, an addict is taking advantage of your kindness, you're supposed to just let them because Jesus says don't resist an evil person as though what Jesus was teaching was don't defend yourself. 
That's not what Jesus was saying at all. In fact, the word resist in Greek, if you translate it literally, it just means stand against. Do not stand against an evil person. Do not make an evil person, the person who has hurt you, your opponent. Um, the context is in contrast to eye for eye, tooth for tooth kind of thinking. Where Jesus says, I know that your natural inclination when somebody hurts you is to lash out and hurt them back. But Jesus says, listen, here's what I say to you. Don't retaliate. Don't go after them. Don't seek revenge. Don't look to settle the score. Don't look to even the playing field. Don't look to get even. Do not just let it go. This whole sermon is about what life looks like when it's lived by somebody who is trying to live in the kingdom of God. And it started with the Beatitudes, with eight characteristics of what that life looked like. And one of those Beatitudes was, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who don't want to see anyone get what they deserve but who rather want to respond to everybody in every circumstance, no matter who they are or what they've done with compassion and kindness. Blessed are those kinds of people. And Jesus says, what on earth does revenge have to do with mercy? Another one of the Beatitudes was blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who want to fill the world with wholeness and abundance and joy and healing and fullness that comes from reconciling people to God and reconciling people to themselves and reconciling people to each other and reconciling people to the world. And Jesus says, let me ask you, he says, what does retaliation have to do with peacemaking? Oh, it's an invitation in those circumstances where people have hurt us to respond with the kind of meekness that Jesus describes Meekness, when he says blessed are the meek, meekness is simply servant-hearted submissiveness. It's a word used of a horse that's been broken that now responds to the every prompting of its rider. A horse whose power has been brought under control that has been tamed so that it's not unleashing its fury and passion and power on the world in an untamed kind of way, but is responsive to the directives of its master. And Jesus says, when somebody injures you, respond in the spirit of meekness being submissive to me allow me to bring that that urge to respond under control and to channel it into mercy and peacemaking what does that look like well jesus gives us in the text he gives us four examples of the kinds of ways that he imagines people responding in situations where they've been injured by somebody else. Jesus says in Matthew 5.39, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. It's interesting that Jesus makes a point of, of noting that it's the right cheek that you've been slapped on. Why would Jesus specify that it's actually, that it's the right cheek that you, that's been slapped. Well, think about it this way. 90% of the people in the world, give or take, are right-handed. So if I'm going to, you know, 
punch you in the face. Or if, I just suddenly realized this is a very violent sermon. There's a lot of teeth being knocked out and punches. But anyway, it's all in the text. So, <laughs> so if I'm going to punch you in the face, if I'm going to slap you with my right hand, on what cheek am I going to make contact? On your left cheek. Right? As I come around and, and it hit. Well, how do I, as a right-handed person, hit somebody on their right cheek? I can only do that if I slap them with the back of my hand. In ancient Israel, a slap with the back of your hand was the gravest insult imaginable. It was to be publicly humiliated, to be publicly degraded, to be shamed in front of all of your peers. It was an insult so disgraceful. The the rabbis put it on par with spitting in somebody's face. That's how insulting it was to get slapped with the back of somebody's hand. In fact, the rabbi said, somebody punches you in the mouth, you have the right to sue. Somebody slaps you with the back of their hand, you have the right to sue for double. The insult is worse than the injury. Jesus says, listen, you have a right to not being slapped with the back of somebody's hand. But when it happens, when you're insulted, when you're publicly humiliated, when you're belittled and berated and ignored, put to shame. Just turn the other cheek. I insult you once, Let them insult you again as you just walk away. Resist the urge to retaliate. Because every other response except turning your cheek and walking away comes out of an intense desire to defend a bruised ego and that's all. Remember a while ago, Krista and I were... um, we were driving around. We had just sold her car for parts. It didn't run anymore. And so we sold it privately. And I just wanted a few hundred bucks for it. And this, this guy showed up to buy the car. And I tell you, he hustled me in every conceivable way that somebody who's buying a car for parts could hustle a seller. Like he just, he pulled every trick in the book in order to get me to lower the price and really, really, you know, got the better of me. I really gave the car away for, you know, I mean, it wasn't a lot of money, but it was just, it was a lot less than what I should have sold the car for. And he left with the car on a flatbed and Krista and I got in our car and we started driving away and I, I shook my head and she said, what? And I said, man, I said, I'm a terrible negotiator. <laughs> and she laughed and she said, yeah, <laughs> you are. And the second she said it, my blood hit a boil. And literally, the second she said, I looked at her and said, oh, like, you're any better? (laughs) It was this instinctive response to defend myself against what I perceived to be an injury to my ego. What I perceived to be an insult. You know, Krista belittling my negotiating ability. Now, I looked at her and said, now, you think you're any better? And literally, she said to me, she said, well, hold on. She said, First of all, she said, I'm not any better, but we weren't talking about me. We were talking about you. And secondly, 
I wasn't even saying you were a terrible negotiator. I was just agreeing with what you said about you. So back off, pal. And she was totally in the right. But there was something inside of me that felt insulted by the fact that she would agree with my own opinion. And I felt like I had to lash back. I had to retaliate. I had to show her that she wasn't better than me. I had to knock her down a peg or two to keep her in my place to defend my dignity and reassert my value and my worth so that I could feel like a a reasonable human being again. Jesus says, there's no point. You have the right to not be insulted. You have the right to not be belittled and berated. You have the right to not be humiliated and embarrassed in front of your friends. You have the right to not be picked on or ignored or passed over. You have the right. But when it happens, and it will, in the spirit of meekness, don't retaliate. Don't don't seek revenge. Don't try and settle the score. Just turn your cheek and walk away as an act of mercy in order to make peace. Second illustration. Verse 40, Jesus says, If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. This too actually comes out of Jewish legislation about borrowing and lending. See, in the ancient world, every bit as much as the modern world, when somebody was lending money to somebody else, they wanted some assurance, some security to know that the person was going to be good for the loan, that they were going to pay them back. And one of the ways in which that security was established was through a little bit of collateral. Now, the problem is when you're a very poor person in ancient Israel, as almost all Israelites were, you had very little to offer by way of collateral, literally only the clothes on your back. Your tunic, which was a a shirt that went all the way down to your feet that everybody wore, it was standard issue clothing. And then you had a second layer called a cloak that you wore over top. And that cloak could be taken as collateral. You see, in in an ancient world, before there was banking institutions and savings accounts and mutual funds and so on, people would use their money as, they would save their money by buying garments of value that they would later on sell at a profit. So you would sort of invest your money in clothes. Clothes actually meant something back then. And so, um, and so this cloak that you had might actually have a little bit of value. And so you could take it as a security for a loan, but there were some stipulations around how you were to do that. In Exodus 22, it says, if you lend money to one of my people who's needy, don't treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. Don't take advantage of their poverty and make money off it. It's shameful. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. God says, listen. I understand you need collateral for a loan. Fine, take a person's cloak. But remember, that cloak is the only thing that poor person has to sleep under. That serves as their blanket on those cold desert nights. You take that away at night, and they've got nothing else to keep them warm. And that's just harsh. And I'm a God of compassion. 
So here's what I want you to do. You take the cloak as collateral. At sunset, I want you to go back to their house and give it back to them. You can go back the next morning and pick it up when they're done sleeping. Um, but at the end of that day, you got to go back and give it back to them. You have to return it every single night. So you understand, there weren't very many people who accepted a cloak as collateral because it was such a hassle to go down to this person's house two times a day to drop it off and pick it up every single day. such a waste of time. So what people would do is they sue for the tunic instead, which wasn't expressly forbidden in the law, but in clear violation of the spirit of Exodus 22, you were literally taking what might be the only clothes a person has right off their back to secure the loan. It was unjust and unfair, and it was oppressive, it was financially oppressive on people who had nothing to spare. Jesus says, Look. You go to borrow some money because you're in desperate straits. You've just got absolutely nothing. And the person wants to unjustly and unfairly put the squeeze on you financially and take your tunic. Let's give them your cope too. You know what? This seems like it means a whole lot to you. It seems like you're really nervous about the deal. Why don't don't you just take my coat as well? So you've got to write to your tunic or you got a right to your coat but forgo those rights you don't need to you don't need to make a big scene of it just let them have what they need to feel confident and secure in the loan you don't need to fight for your rights as though money is somehow more important than mercy as though material possessions are somehow more important than making peace. Now the Apostle Paul would write later, decades after Jesus, he would write, you know, better to suffer financial loss than to embarrass and discredit the cause of Christ by duking it out in court. That's just unseemly, inappropriate. Just give them what they need. Sir, hard words, because <laughs> money means a lot in our culture. I mean, in as much as everybody needs enough to eat and enough to stay warm, the Apostle Paul says everything you have beyond what it takes to feed you and keep you warm is actually just gravy. Um, but money feels like it matters in our culture. You know what Jesus says, when, when you're somebody like the person in this illustration who's short on cash, you know what matters more? He says the kingdom of God. Being the kind of person that Jesus has invited you to be. Living this kind of righteousness that has to do with relationships of love. Jesus says later in the Sermon on the Mount, you make that your top priority. Living with this kind of righteousness. God will make sure that you have everything you need. You don't need to worry about what you'll eat or what you'll drink or what you'll wear. God's got you covered. He says, somebody's unfairly putting the squeeze on you financially, stripping you of your rights. Eh, Forgo your rights. Don't fight for your rights. Respond in the spirit of meekness. And be merciful. And make peace. Third illustration. 
verse 41. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. This is a law actually out of the Roman law book, not out of the Jewish law book. You see, the Romans had this rule. They had these soldiers who were marching all over the empire all the time and carrying all this heavy equipment and stuff. And, and they, so they made this rule that they actually inherited from the Persians to global empires before them. But, but the rule was that if you're a soldier and you're carrying your pack and you got all this equipment and it's getting heavy, at any time, under any circumstance, you can tap any citizen on the shoulder and without giving them any opportunity to refuse, you can insist that they carry your equipment for one Roman mile, which is exactly 1,000 paces. The soldiers loved this rule. They never carried their own stuff. They used the rule all the time. The Jews hated this rule because they hated the Romans. I mean, this was a military occupying force who had overrun their homeland and who routinely mistreated their people, aggressively abused them, took advantage of them, and oppressed them. And now you're going to force me to carry the implements of your oppression for the enemy for a mile? Oh, there, there was hardly anything that grated against the nerves of the Jews more than that. And so they'd pick up the pack because they had to under law and they would count out those paces to 1,000. 998, 999, 1,000. The pack hits the ground, spit, curse, walk away. It's infuriating to them. Jesus says, listen. Somebody taps you on the shoulder and says, you have to carry my pack for a mile. So don't freak out. Don't be angry. Don't do it in the spirit of being grudging and and grumbling about it the whole time, counting out a thousand paces. In fact, Jesus says, don't do what they ask. Do twice what they've asked. And he doesn't mean, you know, count 2,000 paces with that grumbling, grudging attitude and then drop the pack and spit and curse and walk away. No, no, no. Jesus says, listen. Somebody's forcing you to do something you don't want to do. Somebody you hate is making you do something you despise. Just do what they ask you to do. In fact, do twice as much as what they've asked you to do. And do it with a smile. I know you have the right to stop after 1,000 paces, but just forgo your rights and respond in the spirit of meekness. Be merciful and make peace. I don't know who puts pressure on you these days. An unreasonable boss or prof, a domineering partner or a parent who's trying to control your life someone that you don't even really like, who guilted you into doing something that you hate and now you're stuck with this commitment. Jesus says, don't, don't lash out. Do what you've committed. Do twice what you've committed to do and do it with a smile. In the spirit of meekness. Be merciful and make peace. Quickly, the last illustration. He says, give to the one who asks you. 
Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. In Jewish law, debts were canceled every seven calendar years. Not seven years after the debt, every seven calendar years. It was scheduled. Lenders hated the rule. Borrowers loved it. Because a borrower approaches a lender, uh, you know, close to the end of the fifth year, beginning of the sixth year, and wants to borrow money. Now the guy's starting to ask some questions, but assessing the situation, eh, what's the likelihood that this guy's going to repay? Does he have what it takes? Is his job steady? You know, where's he going to get the money from? And is he good for it? And the closer the date got to that seventh year, the more tight-fisted people with money actually became. Nobody lent money to anybody in the sixth year. Nobody. Jesus says, uh, somebody comes to you looking for money. I, I don't want you to be that way. Closed fisted and all analyzing whether or not they're going to have the ability to repay. You know, because you're all afraid that your loan is going to become a gift. At the end of the day, you'll never see the money again. Jesus says, who cares if you never see the money again? In fact, in Luke, when Luke quotes these words, he's, Jesus says in Luke, um, lend to anybody and expect no repayment whatsoever. Just lend the money and if it never comes back, who cares? Jesus says, if you're one of the ones who have money and nearly everyone in these rooms this morning are those who have money, more than what it takes to just eat and be warm. Jesus says, then just Give to people who have genuine needs. Now, St. Augustine noticed hundreds of years ago that Jesus said, give to everyone who asks. He doesn't say give them everything they've asked for. But give indiscriminately. Give generously. Give open-handedly. Be wise. Don't give money to somebody who's going to use it to hurt themselves or to hurt somebody else. That's not loving. But Jesus says, look, if, if you're one of the ones to whom God has entrusted money, you have a right to your money. You have a right to spend it however you want. But forego your right. And when somebody comes and asks, respond in a spirit of meekness. Be merciful. And make peace. Do you get the sense of what it is that Jesus is saying here? This culture of I deserve to get what's coming to me. I want what's mine. I have my rights and I'm going to fight for them to make sure that I get what's mine. Jesus says that has nothing to do with the heart of the kingdom. Since when is the kingdom of God ever about me? It's always about him and everybody else. So he says, in those moments when you've been hurt, when you've been insulted, humiliated, degraded, belittled, berated, in those moments when somebody's stripped you of your rights and put financial pressure on you that's not fair, in those moments when somebody's forced you to do something that you don't want to do, in those moments when people are shamelessly begging from you, you have your rights. But in a spirit of meekness, choose to forego your rights. Don't demand what's yours. Instead, give it to them. Be merciful and make peace. Just as Jesus did. 
who was, when he was slapped at his trial, didn't fight back. Who was stripped not just of his cloak, but of his tunic and his loincloth, and who carried his cross for as many miles as he could to give to all of us what we never deserved. The opportunity to experience real life, forgiveness and transformation in relationship with him. Do as he did. Let's pray together. Father, we have these instincts that cause us to want to retaliate and lash out and defend what's ours and stick up for our rights and God, would you teach us the spirit of meekness to keep all of that impulse under your control so that you can channel that through our lives through acts of mercy and peacemaking so that we can be used by you to create this world in the way that you always wanted it to be so that we can experience the blessing of what it means to live in the kingdom of God In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen.